prepare to be destroyed, Superman. What was that? Yeah, take that, you jerk. That was a minor inconvenience. Yeah, well, that's the idea. Slowed you down. I'll say. Ow. Didn't see that coming, did you? No. Yeah, well, you know, take that. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dudes. Dude. His dudeness, duder, El Duderino. Dude, dude. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. I don't trust men in capes. And you can't cast aspersions on someone just because they're wearing a cape. Superman wore a cape. And now, here's the dudes. Greetings and salutations from podcast land, everybody. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Uh, this week, focusing on All-Star Superman, Volume 2. That's uh, issues 7 through 12, for those of you following along at home with floppies. We're part of the Half Hour Wasted Productions Network, along with George Slatter and uh, Ubu, Sid Ubu Sid Productions. I've uh, assembled uh, the Legion of Dudes tonight to talk about Grant Morrison's mind-bendingly awesome trip into the Silver Age wackiness. On my left here is the gruesome uh, Gettysburg ghost, Adam Umack. Hey, hey. And to my right is the uh, licentious and lascivious Long Island legionnaire, Johnny M. Howdy. And uh, as I said, tonight we're going to be covering All-Star Superman Volume 2. A little bit of Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely's uh, slightly skewed... Uh, Love letter to the Silver Age. But first, I think we have some uh, business to get to. Uh, Johnny M., I think we have a special shout-out to a very special listener. Yeah, this episode is officially sponsored by Dan from San Antonio, known as Ander on our forums. Dan is a real loyal listener. I know everybody's heard his voicemails a bunch of times. He calls us pretty religiously, and he always chimes in on the forums. And he was good enough to make a very generous donation. In episode 50, we kind of reached out and asked our listeners for uh, for any pennies they could throw our way to help us with our weekly, monthly, yearly expenses to keep the Legion of Dudes up and running. And Dan was good enough to answer the call, and he went well, uh, way above what he needed to do. So we appreciate that, Dan. Again, thank you very much. And this episode is officially dedicated to Dan. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Right listening. on. Yeah, you keep listening, we'll keep making them. For sure. So, before we uh, start regular things that we always do, did everyone see District 9 yet? Yeah, I uh, saw it last week with a couple buddies of mine. We uh, went to the uh, old uh, Majestic Theater here in Gettysburg and we checked it out. It was a pretty good flick. Jim? I just saw it with the wife last night and uh, we, we really liked it. I enjoyed the uh, you know semi-documentary style. Now they kept cutting, uh, you know, to the news footage and then the actual like movie footage, and thought the effects were really well integrated into the story rather than, you know, sticking out and just being like, ooh, ah, special effects. It just, you know, served the story rather than, you know, trying to uh, overload the senses. I think John was like that. The movie was made on like, you know, I don't want to say necessarily a shoestring budget, but I guess if you compare that to like the blockbusters and stuff, you know, even in Independence Day terms back in the '90s, I mean, this is a pretty big feat. Yeah, absolutely. And like an unknown cast for the most part. You know, I thought it was really good. I really did. You know, I thought it was 
the the trailers seem to portray such a different movie. I don't know if you guys felt that way. Oh, totally. Yeah, like even that, in, you know, the big, of course, the interrogation scene that they didn't even use in the movie that was like really prominent in, in all the trailers. But the trailer just felt like maybe darker or more of a horror aspect, possibly. And the movie really wasn't that way. Uh, but not that it's a bad thing. It was still a good movie, just different than what I was expecting when I went in. Yeah, that was a little deceptive, though, because, I mean, it, and maybe this is me being ruined from watching The Office, which, of course, is like a mock documentary that kind of, I don't maybe ruin things a little bit. I mean, I was kind of expecting like 24, and I kind of got, you know, that kind of like Arrested Development Office kind of documentary vibe from it. I thought it was pretty cool overall. I mean, I'd probably give it like a B, you know, maybe a B, B minus or so. Um, I thought the plot was a little bit predictable once, you know, the dude started transforming and stuff. But, I mean, it's nothing like... That, that I would fend people off of the movie from solely for that reason. I mean, I just thought it was a little predictable. I mean, if it's like a quote-unquote indie kind of like rock star rising kind of a movie, I, I just maybe thought that maybe we'd get something a little bit different. Well, the the backstory about how District 9 got made is kind of interesting. Uh, Peter Jackson, uh, who produced District 9, uh, wanted to do a Halo movie based on the other you know, video game series Halo uh, with Neil Blomkamp directing. And he shopped it around to the studios, and they said, "No way, we're not going to let you know a fledgling director like uh, Blancamp do you know a giant big budget movie like Halo would you know, a Halo movie would have to be." So uh, Peter Jackson's like, "Oh, okay." So he pretty much funded District Nine out of his own pocket, uh, money he'd made from Weta and from uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. So I think it's kind of cool, you know. He kind of put his money where his mouth was, and uh, you know showed that you know this Neil Blancamp was a very competent director. That kind of makes me ask the question, what is he doing with all that King Kong money if all the Lord of the Rings and the Weta money went to District 9? Hmm. Probably the Lovely Bones, which is coming up soon. Cool deal. It just makes me, it just makes me wonder what a you know, full-on Halo movie would have looked like, you know. but I guess we'll never know now. Unless Spielberg picks it up, that's the latest rumor. Yeah, and I would say, and you guys, I mean, geez, John with the Blu-rays, that's enough said. But, I mean, definitely, I mean, the visual effects were, I would say, above and beyond the normal that we'd see, do you know what I mean, in, in maybe a Hollywood blockbuster or something. I'll put it to you this way. I couldn't tell the CG moments or the explosions or the decapitations or whatever from, you know, my elbow. I mean, it was pretty great. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So maybe next recording we will um, talk about Inglorious Bastards quickly or something because I know that's next on my list. I'm hoping for like tomorrow night or something. Are you going to get that Hannah Montana Blu-ray that comes out this week? <laughs> I'll just bootleg it. Anyway, since we're uh, sponsored by Dan, uh, don't we have some questions from Dan? Yes, we have some episode 50 uh, leftover questions that we never got to. And since this is Dan's episode, I figured we'd go with Dan's questions. So let's throw them around quick before we jump into Superman. How old are the dudes really? That's a question from from Dan. Uh, I am 36, will be 37 soon enough. I am 28 going on... What did you say, 13, 14, I guess? That's a good estimate. Uh, super Friends, maybe 11 or 12. <laughs> Got my underoos on. <laughs> <laughs> Footy pajamas. I am 42. Oh, that's not even that old, dude. Oh, but it is. Well, why do we it call is. you the... All right. When I, I, did, I mean, when, uh, when I'm working with uh, um, you know, 18, 19-year-olds, it very much is. No, I agree that we're all, you know, in that regard, we're old. But I remember making a, like a crack about cave drawings for your yearbook or something. You're not that much older than me. <laughs> we did ride our uh, pterodactyls to school back then, though. <laughs> Uphill. 
Okay, uh, let's go to who is your favorite cosmic Marvel character? Holy cow. And he, he adds, uh, would Johnny M's be 80s Nova with a mullet? <laughs> well, I don't think I have a favorite Marvel cosmic character, so I'll, I'll just go with the 80s Nova with the mullet. That is such a cop-out. I Okay, I'm kind of like sticking my uh, toe in the water as far as Marvel Cosmic. I know I'm like, what, how many years late to the game for Annihilation and Annihilation Conquest? Anyway, I'm going to have to like put that question on hold and just kind of go based off of awesomeness, which would probably be Galactus, a.k.a. Franklin Richards, in the Earth-X storyline. I really liked it when... Galactus kind of like blew the heck out of all the Celestials in Earth-X, and I thought that was probably like one of the coolest comic moments I've read, DC and Marvel included. I'd have to say uh, the Silver Surfer, uh, straight up. Although uh, I do have a lot of fondness for the Jim Starlin Warlock uh, cosmic stuff from the 70s, and the uh, the, um, the Steve Gerber uh, original Guardians of the Galaxy uh, crossed over the Defenders, when I was a kid, I was a big Defenders fan, so I followed them. But if I had to just pick one, I have to go to the Silver Surfer, the whole you know, existential dilemma of, you know, do you help Galactus eat a world that you know is alive but doesn't have intelligent life, or you know, is Galactus truly evil? And that whole thing always kind of appealed to me. So. Yeah, I wasn't thinking along those lines for some reason. I don't know. I guess Marvel is probably my favorite cosmic character. I mean, he's one of the only ones I have exposure to, I guess, but... Well, the Skrulls, they're cosmic characters, right? I mean... True that. I like Skrulls. I like Skrullectra. She did. Very. Poor okay. <laughs> uh, dog or cat? I'm going to go dog. A lot of pets in my place. Sorry. I have two cats, uh, Danny Nuggets and Mookie Jones. So you're going dog or cat? <laughs> cat. <laughs> and finally, what must one do to become a future dude? I say bring cash, cold, hard cash, and you're in. Yeah, I'm not the best recruiter, so um, what John said. <laughs> interns. We need a pool of interns to share amongst us. <laughs> we need a team of Swiss psychologists working around female, the clock. Female interns. <laughs> female Swiss intern psychologists. All right, dudes. I think that wraps up Dan's questions, which is cool. So thanks for that, Dan. And we're going to continue to try to uh, weed through these questions that we got for episode 50 until we're done. And there's a few more episodes worth of them, I think. So that's cool. We enjoy doing it. And uh, with that, I think I'm going to pass it over to Mr. Umac for All-Star Superman Volume 2. All right, rock and roll. Well, John, I would only hope that this is our usual quality. I know I'm hosting it all, and that just sends everything into chaos. But, folks, if you have not read and in turn listen to All-Star Superman Volume 1. We recorded a one-shot episode just like this in January of this year. So if you check out um, the HHW LOD website, All-Star Superman Volume 1 by the LOD is episode number 23. So I know we're in the 50s and whatnot now, but hey, you can always go back and check out that episode. All right. So All-Star Superman Volume 2, like Jim said, covers issues 7 through 12. And... Um, I wanted to really, you know, double dip into the Morrison pool because I think uh, now more than ever, this is kind of when the story, so to speak, gets really, really good and really, really metafictional too, which is kind of crazy. Originally, back in 1998, Morrison, Wade, Mark Wade, and a few others, and I guess who were at DC and well on good terms equally with DC, were more or less hired to kind of pitch relaunch, a la the Burn revamp back in the 80s of Superman. That never materialized. And so when Morrison had one of his um, Coyote Spirit Vision quests doing peyote, uh, 
he had a vision where a man who looked exactly like Superman was kind of like his spirit guide. And he brought most of those story elements to this one, as we'll definitely see in issues seven and eight. Just kind of giving you guys a recap about what happened in issues one through six. In another, you know, timeline, universe, whatever you want to call it, Lex Luthor more or less baits Superman into flying into the sun. And through this act of heroism, trying to save Professor Leo Quinton's sun orb, uh, Superman gets uh, sun poisoning, which I can tell you from spending a few days in Puerto Rico this summer is not that hard to do. And um, the sun poisoning uh, effectively is kind of like a cancer, and it ends up uh, killing Superman. So, you know, or, or end up, uh, you know, going to kill him, I should say. And issues uh, 2 through 12 are pretty much, you know, the last, how, how can I say this, the last, uh, you know, few tasks. I believe it's the 12 labors, kind of like uh, Hercules or Samson, that Superman performs before he ultimately dies. I mean, that's, you know, kind of the interesting twist of, of storytelling that, you know, Morrison like Alan Moore, you know, before him kind of gives away the end of the story, you know, before you get a jump into it. And likewise, you know, since we're finishing out All-Star Superman is that uh, this won the Eisner Award for Best New Series in 2006. And interestingly, it won uh, Best Continuing Series in 2007, even though by design this was created as a limited series, much like All-Star Batman and Robin, which while it has not been in development, heck, has certainly been on the drawing board of Jim Lee over at Wildstorm for a good long while. So, if you guys are ready, we can go ahead and jump into Issue 7. Issue 7 starts with uh, its title being Bizarro. And the important thing to remember with this is there isn't uh, one Bizarro, there's an entire cubed planet full of Bizarros. And so much that there's actually a Bizarro Superman, who, of course, we at, on uh, New Earth would just call Bizarro, right? So, um, as Professor Leo Quinton's uh, in kind of like uh, investigating this underverse, which is kind of an, uh, a theme that Morrison hit in Final Crisis too, this giant cubed Rubik's cube of Earth kind of like leans uh, more toward Earth, kind of like in uh, Green Lantern Mogo form, and it's more or less a sentient thing that has a virus on it in the form of these Bizarros, these kind of inverses of everyone on Earth. And as they touch people, um, they, you know, become infected into these uh, mushy puff piles of these kind of like so soaking wet, uh, squishy bizarros. And it's up to the Man of Steel, of course, to quell this riot. Morrison gets a little wordy here. And he has a lot of science talk. And he kind of pulled this during Final Crisis when he was uh, in, in the checkmate scenes of Final Crisis when um, he was talking about uh, the Black Gambit and Lord I. I, uh, I think if anyone's a sounding board for Morrison in the series, it's probably uh, Dr. Leo Quintum because he just seems to, you know, rattle and prattle off with these crazy kind of like science hyperboles that are really, really indicative of like this crazy universe and underverse and multiverse and parallel dimensions that are all going on and around all over the place, which is, I think, a, a pretty cool thing all in all. And Plus, you can't beat Frank quietly on the pencils. Yeah, I, I've seen uh, Warren Ellis do kind of the same thing. They uh, um, research, uh, like, fringe science and uh, new sciences that, you know, may be coming into, uh, you know, being in the, in the near future or whatever, and apply those theoretical sciences to, uh, to comics. Like, the idea of the Underverse being uh, a whole other universe brought about just because of its uh, own gravitational pull. I just wanted to say that when uh, the... Uh, 
the link is made between our world and the bizarro world by Dr. Quintum. Uh, Superman is off uh, on the other side of uh, Jupiter, setting his uh, baby son eater free. Uh, this will play out into the story later. And then there's this wonderful two-page spread of, of uh, Kal-El hurtling toward a bizarro world, which is in the background, and like Adam said, is a cube. And this is a very Silver Age convention as well, because back when Bizarro was uh, introduced in the 60s, the Bizarro world as it was pictured was always a cube. And this double-page spread is just uh, you know, beautiful. You know, Adam, you mentioned um, Quietly's pencils. One thing we talked about in the first volume as well was the coloring. And, and again, I think it really stands out in the issue. I think... Um, you know, I'm noticing how a lot of the stuff in the Bizarro world is more like gray tones and dark, you know, including Bizarro's costume. And then That's Superman's great. bright reds and blues really stand out on the page, which is like a pretty great effect. I just really enjoy the coloring in this series as a whole. And, and I would say this, John, too. I have never read any other work, to my knowledge, that, Graham, that uh, Jamie Grant has colored. When I picked up, you know, the first issue of All-Star Soups, and I saw, you know, what was that, like pages two and three, the huge splash of him flying underneath the sun. Like, I literally thought that it was either Moose Bauman or Alex Sinclair, that the colors were so, like, amazing and dead on. And so vibrant, too. I mean, like, it actually looks bright when you look at it in the book. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's also a really good way to differ. I'm sorry, to differentiate in the fight scenes, too, between uh, Superman and Bizarro, uh, which is which. You know, it's very obvious which one is Superman. He's the bright, clean colors. Which is bizarre, you know, the more muted uh, reds and reds and blues. Before right. we uh, jump a little further deeper into the episode, I got a question for you guys that I, I have written down here in my notes. The Bizarro Superman that uh, quietly draws, and the Doomsday um, slash Doomsday Jimmy Olsen that he drew previously, and I guess the Luthor and stuff. I mean, I think one of the criticisms, if any, Frank Quietly's pencils might be like perceived as ugly in some cases, especially, and I know Russ would say this, probably about the new X-Men uh, run over at Marvel, but like my real litmus test for artists, because when somebody criticizes an artist's pencils, like I will, I really like bulk because I'm like, wait a minute, everything looks good to me. You know, my litmus test is, does every character look, they live in the same universe? And I'm wondering what you guys think about that question in context of Clark and Lois and Lex and everybody else in this story in, that Morrison created and that quietly drew? Well, that's a tough question without having everything laid out in front of you at one time. But I noticed right away the square jaw of Clark and the real soft-looking Bizarro. I'm not a fan of the soft Bizarro that he draws. I like the kind of like stone Bizarro. Um, with all of the hard edges and everything, but I think it's a real strong effect, again, with the opposites of Superman and Bizarro. You know, it's getting the point across, but I don't love Bizarro's design. O otherwise, for me, there's a little too much line work. Is that, does that make sense? There's a little too many, too many lines in Quiet Lee's faces for me. Um, okay. I, no I noticed it in the new um, Batman and Robin series a lot. Like, Robin seemed to have way too many lines for a young kid. Like, it made him look too old. Uh, that's probably the only problem I have with Quietly is his faces sometimes. Um, but I don't know if you guys have noticed that at all or if it's a problem for you. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, it's obvious he's not drawing from life or trying to draw realistically. But then a lot of my favorite comic artists don't. I mean, Michael Allred, uh, Darwin Cook, 
um, you know, just off the top of my head. Uh, but, I mean, you can tell Frank Whiteley's work when you see it, for sure. Um, I understand what John's saying about it being very line-heavy, but I kind of like that. It kind of adds detail and texture uh, to my eye, um, to, to the work that he does. And I think that, uh, in answer to your question, Adam, it does look very contextual uh, to itself. It, it does look like it's all, you know, cut of the same cloth. And I think that what John was saying about the coloring is very important, too, because it really becomes a dynamic player in this. Uh, it would be very easy just to have a very muted palette, and that would just kind of make Quietly's pencils almost look all the same uh, or homogenous. But the, the colors really make it pop and uh, bring out that detail that, that Quietly has in his work. He has this really kind of strange combination of epic plus minimalism. I mean, especially if you look at you know Superman sitting on the cloud way back on issue one's cover. But I just I just think it's interesting, you know, because like if you look at our buddy like Harold Janet, you know, all of Harold's characters look like they can live and breathe and you know play around with each other and, and stuff, and you know the mime strip or you know his sketchbook and stuff like that too. And it's just a I, I just think that that might be a really good question to put into context with everything else because, you know, I mean, you talk so many comics. I mean, I, I can't, you know, spot everything all at once as far as, you know, this line, that line or another. But I think, and, and I don't know if this is fairly or unfairly that quietly comes under this kind of criticism, but I mean, you know, you put yourself in the public. I like that. And I guess, you know, you have no choice but to be open to it. But I mean, certainly, I guess, like you had, like you guys had said, if Batman and Robin's any other indication, you know, he's, I mean, he's, he's not a monthly artist for sure. But I mean, he can certainly rise to the task and, and you know and draw heroes or like you, you had said, John, you know even create ones um, and costumes and such like like Damien. So I guess to finish out this issue, Daily Planet, uh, they're having a Christmas party. It's a, kind of an interesting uh, similarity between you know the Christ-like figure that Superman actually is, and so the Bizarros come in for attack and they, like I said, start to uh, replicate and duplicate and all this stuff, and people start jumping out of windows and things go all sorts of crazy. Um, after he releases the pet Sun Eater, a Bizarro transforms into a Bizarro Superman. And while this kind of No Man's Land-esque contagion starts spreading straight-up Black Plague style, Superman comes back to fight Bizarro Superman and once again save the Daily Planet staff, Lois, Jimmy, Perry included. So when all this craziness is going on and Steve's kind of like puffing himself up and, you know, uh, trying to be the hero and save the day, Jimmy Olsen, probably had something to do with his signal watch, figures out that um, the Bizarro's a weakness is sunlight. So again, you've got that kind of inverse with Superman. So Supes uses his uh, big time speed to knock Bizarro World out of the sun's way. And so that that sun can be reflected onto the planet Earth, which is a, a good, happy ending uh, so far. And I think, uh, interestingly, Earth is named Hetra. It's H-T-R-A-E, which is Earth spelled backwards in true bizarro form. Pretty cool. Yeah, definitely well, cool. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, it's kind of weird on the one panel we get to see Superman trying out some of his new powers. He said, I'll try one of my new powers. And it's this like blue lightning field which is not only a callback to like the blue electric Superman of the 90s, but also uh, to the Samaritan from uh, Astro City. They had a similar power uh, called an Emprian field. Uh, same kind of deal. So that's kind of interesting. I wanted to give Morrison some credit that I, I probably never do. I'm not, as it comes to, as no surprise, I'm not a big fan of his wordy, um, like Adam, like you said, the scientific jargon, like yeah. style that he uses. 
it's just not my you know I would never say he's a bad writer or he sucks or anything else that you might hear on a you know message board or or whatever I it's not just not my board. Not yeah. on message board, John. Never. <laughs> it's it's just not my cup of tea. I mean, I I like my comics more like summer movies than you know the style that he writes them in. But, but I give him. I mean, obviously the chops are there because he switches gears in this book, and and he's he's come up with all of these cool like Silver Age conventions, like you know reflecting the sunlight on the Bizarro planet, and and like all the other things that you guys mentioned, and and he's pulling out these nods to the silver age, you know, and that's kind of the mirror image of, you know, Morrison's writing is like the inverse of the silver age. You know what I mean? So, so to, to flip a switch in this book and and do some of that stuff, I think is really, you know, cool. I think it shows that, you know, his, uh, it shows his, what's the word I'm looking for? His prowess in writing. He also likes to interweave some of his own ideas, as we see at the end of this issue, when uh, Superman ends up stranded on the Bizarro world, and he meets uh, Zabaro, who is the Bizarro of Bizarro world. So he's like <laughs> totally normal, but we meet him. We uh, see him a little more in the next issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just wondering because you know a lot's been made up and talked about with Morrison and the Silver Age, with Batman R.I.P. and of course with All Star Superman, and. I mean, it's pretty clear that a Silver Age story can't work, but it seems as though nods to the Silver Age or like, I don't want to say parodies, I guess, um, but like kind of like a tip of the hat to the Silver Age um, seems to be a solid bet as far as, you know, a storytelling or at the very least a storytelling convention or modality um, at this time. But it's, a, it's just an interesting piece that you brought up too, John, because I, I had mentioned earlier, you know, the, the renaming of Earth and also um, the Underverse. And w- when he pulled uh, this same rabbit out of a hat in Final Crisis, I, I think uh, Dr. Savannah Libra Calculator were talking about the uh, Unternet, which would be kind of like the internet for villains. It's like what he does is, and I don't want to call this name dropping, but because I don't want to slight it as a, as a, as a writer to in, in, in his respect, but... I'm not so much sure if he just drops names or if it's like he just he says this to like open your imagination up to everything that's happened off page to this point, like the underverse. Oh, my gosh. What's that craziness? The Internet. What what you know, what does Lex Luthor's, you know, MySpace profile look like? I don't know. (laughs) But like I think that's where a lot of the criticism comes when people say I don't understand this. Well, in fairness, he didn't write that in order for it to be explained. And I can totally see how people interpret that as bad storytelling or as complete wacko off the wall. But if you look at the writer's craft, he's just maybe not doing that as expertly as others would like him to. But I don't think that anyone could, you know, uh, wag their finger at him for trying at least. My biggest complaint, I, I shouldn't even say it, it's not even a complaint. My biggest problem when reading Morrison is I, I read everything I don't understand, I say, I must have missed something, I don't understand that. And half of it, you're not supposed to understand, like you just said, Adam. Like right. half of it, he just made up. And the other half might be a nod to something that happened in the past. But some of it, you're supposed to ask questions about, you know, which is cool. Right, and, and, the, and the problem is, what, how do you differentiate between the two? Because like in Final Crisis, and I know I've like mentioned this like three times, but 
that's like about as fresh as Morrison stuff as we have aside from Batman, and I think it's probably the closest cousin to All Star Soups. Is that you know Savannah and Luthor blast Libra, and then like Libra disappears out of nowhere, and then they're like, well, we haven't seen the last of him, but that, that's such a mustache twirl, you know, thing that a villain would say, but it's right. a villain saying it to another villain, which is the twist, and and like I had said, the tip of the hat to the Silver Age stuff that has come before it. So. Is it the same story recycled over and over again? Not, not quite. I don't think that's really a fair assessment. If you look at the, uh, the postmodern age of comics, which is probably before what we're reading now, there was a, uh, and we've mentioned this in other, uh, other, talking about other books as well, there's a total, they want, in the 80s, there was a lot of uh, stripping away. You know, we would need to start everything over. Batman Year One, you know, the Burns, Burns Man of Steel, um, you know, the, the reboot on Wonder Woman, you know, all after the, the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And, you know, they, we're going to get rid of all this baggage from the Silver Age, and we're going to start all over and brand new slate and everything. And now it's come full circle, and people are embracing those, uh, you know, conventions of the Silver Age and all that continuity and mining it for good stories. I mean, you see it with uh, Brubaker on Cap, you see it with James Robinson and Starman, you see it here with Morrison on uh, All-Star Superman. You know, he takes what is cool and interesting to him about the character and uses it. And what would have been considered, you know, goofy and, you know, high concept Silver Age and too, you know, Silver Agey for the 80s now appears postmodern and mind-blowing because he's coming at it from this whole different perspective. I really think, it, you know, it just depends on the artistic team, you know, coming at it as to whether this stuff is used well or not. I can't think of a, of a bigger compliment as far as a, a, a writing team and a creative, excuse me, as far as a creative team goes, aside from... Uh, you know, these two being paired up with each other. I don't think it's any mistake that, you know, they started a new book right off the bat with Batman and Robin, too. Yeah, that's been really good. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to that. I think it might be late. Is that running late? Not yet. Oh, okay. All right. It <laughs> seems like a while since, I guess, what is it, two issues out or three? Uh, Maybe I'm three, just behind. Three's coming out very, okay. very soon. So that's what we got. Okay. Well, I'm going to finish up uh, number seven and jump into number eight, which is called Us Do Opposite. With Bizarro World kind of, um, in its throes, it's kind of like uh, going back into the under underverse, which I guess would be the equivalent of Quard, the antimatter universe in some ways. His powers, excuse me, Superman's powers start to kind of like subside, and he realizes because there's no yellow sun to power him up that he's uh, totally bone and stuck on this planet. He is trapped. He meets the Bizarro Bizarro, like Jim had said earlier, Zabarro. Now this <laughs> is where things get complicated, right? So he's you know, the flawed copy of Bizarro, and, and so much so that uh, on, an, on a pure intelligence, on a pure, you know, humanity scale, the Bizarro world, you know, has nothing on Zabarro. The, the problem is that Hetra is still sinking, so Superman decides, with the help of his newfound uh, poet warrior Zabarro, and a version of Jor-El named LaRorge, which, you see what they did there? They switched the lettering. <laughs> they, uh, kind of like negotiate with the Bizarros. And, and Zabarro is just like, you know, don't negotiate with these guys. But Superman, I mean, he's no slouch. Of course, presumably he has, you know, super intelligence too, right? So once he figures out that up is down and down is up and left is right and right is wrong, they start building a rocket in true, you know, Krypton style, Kryptonese style, to send Superman back out of the underverse and back to, well, I guess for lack of a better word in this uh, chronology, real earth. 
Zaboro is kind of an interesting twist on the Bizarro story. I mean, he's certainly a, a tragic creature as far as he's portrayed. I mean, he writes poetry. I mean, how you know emotional can you get? But I, I think the 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 biggest tragedy of Zaboro is that he can't be Superman. You know that he's kind of like stuck in. Imagine if you're stuck in the DMV. Now imagine if you're stuck in the DMV for your entire life. You know you're just surrounded by a bunch of uh, delinquents and and morons, and that's the real problem that Zabaro has. I love the um, other versions of the other heroes, like the Bizarro Green Lantern and the Bizarro <laughs> Flash, who instead of lightning has links of chain on his costume. <laughs> Another important point in this issue is that Lois uh, finds out what is happening to Superman. Uh, through Dr. Quinton. She kind of guesses, but he kind of tell, you know, confirms her fears that Luthor has uh, poisoned him and he, only, you know, he has a limited amount of time to live. I like the, uh, the Star Spangled Banner of Bizarro Land that they sing as, you know, before they strap uh, Superman to the rocket. And, you know, it goes to figure if there are millions and millions of Bizarros that one of them is going to be the Bizarro Bizarro. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a neat idea, you know, the Zabaro. That's a, just a really kind of like interesting, I guess, one approach and two execution of, of, you know, how he pulled this off. And, you know, as we'll see later on in the issues, Clark saves Zabaro's poetry to put in the Fortress of Solitude as, you know, one of, you know, the great things that he has that he's borne witness to as well. Look at the um, I really appreciate Quietly's work where um, Superman and Zabaro are sitting next to each other on like a pile of you know, rubber, rubbish or whatever, like they're, they're on the top of a dump. And, uh, you know, they really are opposite. You have Zabaro whose shoulders, if you look at the bottom panel on the page, are, are you guys where I'm at? Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's kind of like when Superman was on the cloud, only kind of like a reverse image of that. Right, and you see Zabaro's like knocky kneed, like his knees are both pointed in and his shoulders are slouched forward. And, and Superman's posture in the other panels is kind of like shoulders back and wide chested and... You know, his posture is just completely opposite. It's just a nice touch by uh, by Quietly. I enjoyed the page. I think one of the descriptions that I, I remember from one of the, um, I, I believe it might have been Son of M book, John. You, you might be able to help me out with this one, was Quicksilver described himself as, you know how terrible it is waiting in line at the post office? Well, imagine that, you know, every second of your life. And, you know, that's why, uh, you know, Quicksilver was such a quick-tempered and, you know, always irritable kind of a personality, and I just couldn't be—I just couldn't imagine, you know, <laughs> being stuck on a planet with everything you know to be true, but completely opposite. So it's actually false to begin with, anyway. And, and it's just funny that because I mean, they kind of allude to this that they look at you know Zabaro as this kind of like Frankenstein-esque, you know, monster. You know that that <laughs> I wouldn't say necessarily poses a threat, but you know certainly does nothing to endear himself to the bizarros at large. That Quicksilver thing is from Peter David's uh, X Factor. Okay, uh, sorry. Like I said, me and the possible. Marvel stuff, not so good, Jim. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was uh, when he took over, I remember the transition issue was uh, Doc Sampson uh, from Marvel Universe uh, psychoanalyzing each member of X Factor. And that was the... Uh, it was cool because it, it gave a rationale for why Quicksilver is such a, uh, a jerk in like you know five minutes and then you realize oh duh i never thought of it that way yeah. so the costume is cool too you know like bizarro is the opposite of superman but he they have basically the same costume with the backwards s but now 
Zabaro to try to even go further with the opposites theme. You know, the reds are blue and the blues are red. It's a simple choice, but it, it made a lot of sense. So, like Jim said, Lois is hanging out with Quintum and the other staff at uh, Project, and she's watching kind of like everything that's happening on Hetra and learns at this point, like Jim said, of Superman's impending death. I mean, at this point, you know, Leo and his crew are, have not been able to deduce or ration out any type of cure of any kind. Um, and she basically accepts, like he had said, Jim, that Clark is Superman. Um, the rocket gets completed, Superman's tied to it, and then we've got liftoff. Um, Hetra doesn't explode like the original Krypton does, but rather it kind of sinks back into this uh, pocket universe dimension that we call the Underverse. And we, of course, know that Kal-El makes it out okay, but as far as Lois and Leo are concerned, Bizarro World has totally uh, sunk and there's absolutely you know, hide nor hair of Superman at all. I like that last splash page with uh, Zabara looking up, um, you know, among the rubble and, and chaos of, of Bizarro World, looking up, having hope, you know, that Superman might actually be able to make it back for him. And this is his, uh, you know, second rocket ride too. And <laughs> instead of you know escaping a near destruct planet, he's escaping a planet that's already destroyed. If that makes any sense, to even like he said earlier, John, double up on the inverses too. What do you think that Statue of Liberty's holding? A stick of dynamite? You see the fallen Statue of Liberty behind uh, Zabaro on that last splash? I th- is that like a flashlight? <laughs> I don't know. It's like a stick of. I think that's a fuse hanging. I can't. Uh, I can't tell. But at any rate, it's. I guess the opposite of a torch. I don't know. I think it would be funny if it was a stick of dynamite. <laughs> it could be a gogurt. From the angle. <laughs> My refrigerator is my refrigerator is stacked with gogurts, sir. <laughs> I knew I knew you were a cool dude. <laughs> so we're kind of like uh, dovetailing into you know the final throes of the series, and with issue nine, as if Bizarro Superman and if Zabaro weren't enough, just like Atlas and Samson before them in issues one and two and three. Superman rockets back to Earth successfully and discovers in, that in his absence, Metropolis has been fixed since the Bizarro invasion. And it's been replaced with Kryptonian architecture. And we're seeing a lot of that, of course, in the world of New Krypton with Robinson and Rucka and everything that's happening in action and the Superman title right now. Now, Earth has been protected by, I'm going to say, Lilo or Lilo. Lilo, I guess that's good, like the Disney movie, right? And Barrel. Now, these two are Krypton's first astronauts. I guess these would be the uh, equivalent to, you know, the cosmonauts or everybody like John Glenn or whoever that was in the space program here in the states. But these two have uh, have basically been flying around for, you know, the rest of forever, and are actually his relatives. And to go along, you know, with being Superman's relatives, the hyphen E L on the back shows that they're from the House of L. But interestingly, they don't wear the House of L symbol which, as we know it, is to be the crest and uh, S-shield. They have um, kind of uh, completely different designs. So I guess, and, and this is not a nitpick, this is just you know an artistic decision, you know, that they didn't keep the continuity with the different houses and, and at this point, guilds that are, I guess, exclusively Kryptonese. They don't really have the best intentions of in mind, these two. They're basically preparing <laughs> for... Uh, global domination, uh, hence the architecture, right? 
And as a matter of fact, they're actually kind of like disgusted with how how it looks and just the normal conventions of Earth culture, if you want to call it that. I don't know humanity, and they actually end up overpowering him for a while and. They show signs of kind of like this kind of strange illness. Another interesting twist, you know, that crypt- Kryptonians aren't all, well, uh, Kryptonians weren't raised by Ma and Pa Kent, and they're not, I guess a good word would be altruistic, you know, they're not always out for the greater good. I mean, I guess you had to have really good parents, Jorel, and likewise, uh, you know, John and Martha, in order to be a Superman. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to mind when I saw these Kryptonians was that they're much more like Zod and Nan and Ursa than like Superman. This which... reminded me very much of an episode of the uh, animated series as well where a uh, Kryptonian couple uh, showed up. And I cannot remember the names of the Kryptonians that showed up. But do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I know the uh, the male Kryptonian had a full beard and the, one, the female Kryptonian had white hair. Uh, but it was the same... Similar premise, they show up on Earth. Right. Um, Superman tries to, you know. But in this, I mean, they've already taken over while Superman is gone. And then they, uh, they t- you know, they, they chide him for not doing enough, for not freeing the people of Kandor, for, you know, he lacks drive and ambition if he it was unable to, to free them. And then finally, they just get tired of him kind of giving the beat down. They literally smash him against the moon hard enough to crack it and then bounce him off the Earth. And then uh, he's standing in a crater looking up at them, and he's, you've broken the moon. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminded me of the tick where uh, you know, Chairface Chippendale carves his name on the moon, but only gets the first three letters in. Yeah, and actually, like, didn't that stay, like, kind of a constant on the tick, too? Like, you would see a uh, shot of the city, and it would still be up there on the moon, like, what, two or three episodes later? Which is really weird for a cartoon anyway, actually. Yeah, how come it doesn't say I love Lucy on the moon? Because, uh, you know, Jimmy in the earlier uh, issue um, had, uh, you know, Dr. Quintum, you know, carve the moon to say I love Lucy. I think that was on the dark side of the moon. (laughs) Now, are these, uh, before this gets silly, are these um, made up Marson Kryptonians or are they names from Silver Age or anywhere else? I've, I've never heard of them before this issue. So I, w- I would probably say probably. <laughs> cool. So the new Krypton stuff, I, you'd be hard-pressed to not say that they were at least influenced by this idea because it's the same type thing, right? They're all ticked at Superman and how he went about things and, and how his leniency caused all these problems and they try to take the situation over. That's how it say- started, right? I know we're past that in that story, right. but... Right. Well, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm reading it now, but I would say actually, John, it's pretty much textbook. I mean, they you like I think you pretty much hit it right on the head because it's it might as well be Zod, but I, I maybe making it, um, you know, his own kin, his own family ancestors, if we want to call it that. Maybe that just kind of like twists the knife that much more deeper. Um, but you know, they basically view Earth as a planet of apes, which is interesting looking at. Issue eight on Bizarro World, <laughs> in the same kind of you know mirror context, if you if you want to look at it like that. But you know it's kind of like they're really isolationists. They're like Kryptonian dominancy. End of story, which is really similar to you know what's happening in Invincible right now. For the last oh my gosh, since the second storyline in Invincible, really with Ultraman and or excuse me with um, Mark Grayson's dad, Omni Man, 
and the Viltrumite Empire. You know, they want to, you know, have conquest, to use an invincible word, of Earth, and it's up to Mark to prepare them. And these guys are looking at Clark as though, you know, why haven't you done this? This is your job, correct? You know, and they, they take a real issue with it, too. By you know smacking him around across all those buildings and stuff. I mean, geez. Plus, they come to the planet and out him pretty much. They, you know, they float right outside the office of the Daily Planet while he's uh, while he's uh, dressed as Clark Kent. And, right. Uh, pretty much out him in front of the Daily Planet, the Daily uh, Planet crew. There's also a cool little callback when uh, their powers start to fade and Lilo falls uh, in front of the Daily Planet building. Superman grabs her and says, oh, "Okay, I have her." And then uh, Bar M says. Get your naked hands away from her. It's kind of a callback to the xenophobic Kryptonians. Daxmites. From uh, well, originally uh, in the in the reboot in the eighties, the Kryptonians, you know, never touched their children, never touched each other, were very you know, xen- you know xenophobic of, of of any kind of contact whatsoever. So it's kind of a callback to that. Okay, I thought you were going like with the whole like you know tying in Monel. You know what I mean as far as the Daxmites go, because like right now in Green Lantern Corps. They're on Daxum that Mongols taken over, and basically it's, I mean, xenophobia, you know, certainly is the fear, but like, at least in the core books right now, it's definitely turned into like straight up racism, actually, you know, with what some of the senators and stuff are saying to Arisia, as per, you know, Sodom Yat and some of the Mongol core members at, at this point. So I'll have to, you know, absolutely agree with you on that one. I just, you know, it's just an interesting thing because... You know, you look at this whole space saga, and DC can still play with that. You know, stuff like Star Trek, everybody's happy, everything's a big hippie commune in space here, you know, you know, or, or a little bit past that. So they overpower Superman. Barrel and Milo, they show signs of this uh, illness. You know, they start kind of like fading. Um, through not much research at all, I, they figure out that from passing through a radioactive cloud in space, um, these two basically, like Clark, again, uh, again, there's opposites, uh, but the same at this, uh, at the, at the same time, uh, alike and similar. This cloud was made of kryptonite, so they're dying. And instead of you know his initial refusal, uh, taking them to you know the Fortress of Solitude and all that good stuff, Superman helps the two of them by putting them into the Phantom Zone, and that's where I was coming from with the Monel stuff. Until yeah, um, that's, a, a that's definitely con- a callback to that. He does yeah. he's in the Silver Age. He had to do the same thing with Monel because of lead poisoning. Until a cure can be found, we're going to toss you into the Phantom Zone. So until then, it's like, well, he he basically gives them not just Earth, but Earth plus you know a hundred other Earths in policing the Phantom Zone. So it's kind of like they're you know the the law. So they get put into the Phantom Zone to bring order. Whereas Zod, John, your, your, your buddy over there, Zod, right, he gets put in the Phantom Zone and, you know, stirs everything up. So there's an inverse of Zod, too. So that's kind of an interesting play on things. But, yeah, it definitely has its callbacks to mon and and, you know, the Zod um, likening, too. And I don't anticipate, you know, we'd see these guys anywhere in continuity. Still a, a kind of an interesting story. You know, he helps his own kin, and I think you can definitely say the same from that poison gas cloud of krypton it's almost like well you know your own home is killing you which is which is the killer part for clark and these guys who are such zealots it, it's doing the same you know to them that they they can't even touch a piece of their own home which is pretty wild if you think about it that way shall we move on to issue 10 sure so death is pretty much uh quickly approaching clark and you can tell 
that, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly starting to get to them, you know, certainly by, geez, the cover. And uh, this issue is entitled um, Never Ending. And uh, at this point, he kind of like goes on uh, the Superman world tour. And certainly, you know, the Earth is in good hands, as, as you can tell. And this tour more or less is um, different types of, I guess, Herculean type tasks that we had mentioned about earlier. He wants to help a bunch of sick kids who are, my guess, terminally ill, you know, recover, and he ends up help curing them. He creates uh, life in, uh, a, in the form of what is to be later called Earth Q, more formally. And Dr. Quintum helps him in taking Candor to Mars when he jumps in and kind of like uh, discusses uh, with the uh, Kandorian Council you know, here's what I, what I can do for you, you know. And in turn, he gives Dr. Quinton and Lois the methodology to combine human and Kryptonian DNA strands, which I, I think is a pretty cool scene, especially with the kids at the hospital and stuff. Is that the one of the original Silver Age Flamebird costumes that Quinton is wearing that he says he borrowed from Jimmy? Um, I See, I've only seen the Flamebird costume back in the day, and like, well, I guess the big one would be when Nightwing took the name Nightwing, you know, but I've seen that only in like flashback panels. Um, I, I can't you know, speak to that, but if you compare that to the one that's in action comics, there are definitely some big similarities right now with um, Thera Akvar, who is, the now, who is now the, the Flamebird of Earth. Plus, uh, the, this idea of Earth Q that is, is uh, he wanted it, he creates it basically so you can see what a world is like without a Superman. So uh, basically, he's created our universe in this box, uh, so you can see, you know, just so you can see what an Earth without a Superman would be like. And you know, the result is eerie that, you know, in his, what, I'm not sure his attempt is godhood, but he certainly accomplishes that anyway, and. He creates it in his own image, you know, and as we'll see later what happens when, you know, the pencil hits the paper and uh, Siegel and Schuster, you know, creates Superman, which is pretty cool, too. Um, a lot of things going on here, but I think really struck me with this issue is I, I think probably the scene with the kids in the hospital more so than any others was the Superman oversized original graphic novel that Alex Ross did, those really huge tabloid ones which was uh, Superman Peace on Earth one. He's like, you know, like bringing the Christmas tree to, you know, like, uh, New York or helping uh, feed kids and stuff like that. I think that this kind of like uh, really hit the stride of what he's quote unquote all about to use a very, very bad cliche. You're right about the world tour thing. He stops at a lot of places. He also stops to see Lex Luthor to tell him that he's dying. And he, to challenge him, he says, look, all this time, you said, you know, you would rule this world if I wasn't here, if I wasn't in your way. It's not too late to put, you know, your brilliance to work. And you know, he says he knows there's good in you. And Lex's reply is spit on the glass between the two of them. And so absolutely no, no word bubbles at all, which was crazy. You know, Lex is just totally contemptible and, and holds that, you know, against Clark so much, too. That was, um, that was definitely, like, I don't know. I definitely got chills when I saw that or, or, and read it, you know? I kind of... <laughs> I took kind of like a double meaning from it. It might be reading too far into it, but I, I guess you could look at it as Lex is just, you know, happy that Superman's going to die and he's just always ticked off at him and he's not going to help him. He's not going to give him the satisfaction of talking to him in his dying moment. You could also look at it as, you know, Lex is, 
Lex is angry because what's he going to do now? You know, like, this is like a huge amount of pressure that's been put on him. Like, yeah, he always says that he would run things if Superman wasn't around. Well, if Superman's not around, he's got to either put up or shut up, basically. Right. Um, It's kind of like that duet. You know how there's always that Joker, Batman, uh, you know, one only exists because of the other type of thing? You know, what what kind... Who's... Lex Luthor going to get over on now if Superman's not around. It's a good point. I like the part where the Kandorian scientists try to uh, go actually go into Kal-El's bloodstream and uh, and help the white ana- uh, the white uh, blood cells fight the infection that's breaking apart his cells, but they're unable to uh, yeah. to do anything. You know that's like when um, Aquaman and the Atom went into Bla- Batman's bloodstream on the Brave and the Bold cartoon. I, I can't help but think that, and that's an old. Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, Morrison didn't create this, of course. I mean, that's such an old, like, story, whack job story convention. You know what I mean? Like, we'll we'll, we'll fight it on a microscopic level. I mean, that's the whole point of Ray Palmer, I guess. But that definitely kind of like made me smile when I saw that on the Batman and the Brave and the Bold cartoon. You know. And then the next to the last page of this issue, where we see on Earth Q, where even on a world without a Superman, they invent a Superman, and uh, they show either. Jerry Siegel or Joe Schuster drawing the very first Golden Age Superman drawing, saying this is going to change everything. So even on a world without a Superman, Superman is a symbol of hope. And I just like that old Action Comics original Golden Age Superman logo that Schuster drew on that last, that Schuster in the comic drew. You know, uh, I, I just thought that that, that just, you know, that just really screams class to me. You know, that's that's such a neat send up. And, you know, of course, I wasn't around to read the Golden Age and I've had to go back and read the Silver Age stuff. But you know what? If you're a fan, you know, it's you know, it's exactly what's what's happening here. You know, and that's just a really neat thing. And um, I'd also say that, you know, he stops like uh, this robot dude's rampage and in probably the weirdest synchronicity matchup that I've seen in comics personally is that um you know, he has these thought bubble, well, thought bubbles, these kind of like, I guess, Professor X psychic bubbles that pop up, but the really, that's kind of like his super hearing that's kicking into high speed, right? And he saves this girl's life when Lois starts to confront him about, you know, his imminent demise, right? Well, as soon as this issue hit, and I kid you not, the Kingdom Come Superman came into the JSA title when Johns was writing it. And the Kingdom Come Superman did this exact same thing. He flew out of the brownstone when the JSA was like trying to figure out who he was and stuff, right? And he flew through New York, where they're based out of, right? And he saved a girl who was about to jump off a ledge. And I just thought that that was like the weirdest, I guess, comic timing <laughs> um, in, in sync up that I've seen. Like, I mean, and these were probably like, what, probably like weeks, weeks apart from each other, you know? It wasn't that long ago. But I was just like, I felt like I've read this story before, you know? It was pretty weird. <laughs> I, I really um, I enjoyed the last page as well. And, and it kind of sums up for me, like, what Superman is to me. You know, I don't read Superman monthly. I, I don't love the character um, for what it is now. But I really respect what the character is and, and what it stands for and what it means to, you know, comics and everything. And... And being a Superman fan, you know, is a cool thing. You could say you've been it your whole life. And I, I really get all that. And I think that last page kind of like sums that up for me. Like, I'm not really into it monthly, but, um, you know, but I respect the whole 
iconic image. All right, we're going to jump into issue 11 right now. And um, issue 11 is kind of like the uh, penultimate issue uh, when it was coming out. Still on time, thankfully. Um, this one was entitled Red Sunday. Certainly this speaks to the red sun and the nature of Superman's um, you know, origin with the red sun of Krypton. So uh, we've got the cover, and it's Clark floating around at his desk at the Daily Planet with the headline, Superman Dead by Clark Kent. Now, Jim, you had mentioned World Without a Superman, and that just kind of brought me back to, oh my gosh, the, the 90s when they killed him off and everything. But um, Clark gets to write his own obituary in a, in a lot of ways because he knows what's coming, and, well, he is a reporter. And I just think it's funny that you know the Boy Scout that he is, he wants to do he – he's still doing his job, I guess both jobs really – as the reporter and as you know, the Man of Steel here, he death is imminent, and Luthor likewise to show that inverse relationship again is a parallel relationship is also facing imminent death. He's facing execution, and we found that out from the early chapter in the book, um, the Gospel according to Lex Luthor. And whereas Superman's kind of dealing with this fatal condition that's slowly killing him, his arch nemesis is getting the death that will happen in seconds. And I, I can't help but laugh when every time I see Frank quietly draw what I'm going to forever now call the Lex Luthor grin, whether it be in the preview pages we talked about post-Watchmen for We 3 or X-Men or anything else. He just has this crazy smile that I can't help but you know laugh whenever I see it. His last task of all these great you know mythic, I guess modern mythic, um, feats that he's accomplished is complete when Lois discovers... Clark's headline, Superman's Dead, right? Luthor uh, kind of becomes, I guess, un, a little unsettling, maybe not necessarily twitchy, but as the switch is pulled when he's going to be electrocuted, uh, Lex is alive. Um, his last request, uh, this cocktail in true elitist form, was actually um, uh, the elixir that was used that um, Superman gave Lois when um, she got uh, his powers for 24 hours a few issues ago. So Lex escapes. He meets up with his niece, uh, Nastatalia, and what happens then is pretty much his plans that he set in motion from the very start. Clark finishes off his final plans at the fortress, and that's when, kind of walking around, looking at his uh, museum, no giant penny or Tyrannosaurus there, Superman's I guess Fortress of Solitude is a little more flexible in art terms as far as what's been included rather than um, the Batcave. But we learn of um, Lex Luthor's ally, Solaris, the Sun Tyrant. And with his robots, Superman begins to fight Solaris in space. And we got a lot to talk about, so who wants to start? Solaris is from uh, DC One Million, also Graham Morrison creation. Uh, and I don't think he appears in DCU before that. Yeah, that one million, uh, I guess, mini-event was definitely the, the kickoff. But um, I just it just seems like a, a really cool kind of Silver Age villain, like, well, I guess even Golden in some terms, like Titano, the giant ape, you know, that Superman uh, first fought way back when. I love the page. It's a splash page, but it has the one panel on top. You're receiving all the downloads on Solaris, and then... Come Superman, come die. <laughs> it's all the trail of robots behind them flying up towards the reader. Very cool. 
And it's it's kind of like the uh, chronovore that he also fought with the Superman from um, different times and stuff too. It's it's kind of like a same kind of like giant ball of monster just kind of hurtling at him. And again, you've got the opposite the opposite quality with a son, something that's you know supposed to be life sustaining for him and in fact empowering to him, trying to be his ultimate demise. And of course, you know. A son is what caused all this mess in the first place. I like his way of dealing with uh, Solaris as well. So a tyrant son meets Sun Eater. And then uh, Solaris attacks the Sun Eater, and Kal-El is extremely uh, ticked off that uh, he killed the Sun Eater and takes his wrath out on Solaris in a very uh, physical way. I think there's definitely a high tolerance in comics for something that's totally absurd. Jim, this moment with um, the tyrant son and the Sun Eater remind me, and I know this is no surprise to our listeners of the Sinestro Corps, how do you kill a virus? Well, with an antivirus. How do you kill a sun? Well, with something that eats the suns, you know? And I, I think that these, this is that kind of like, I'm not going to say happy-go-lucky, but kind of like whimsical, sing-songy type of writing and convention that I think Morrison really does well. And I think that, he, likewise, that he really does professionally i mean you know i understand this is job and everything but if anything i mean this is like the irony of all ironies which i think this book is just like chock full of plus it could have just been a throwaway thing he had at the beginning of the story yeah oh this is my uh, sun eater you know i feed it baby sons but instead you know morrison weaves it back into the story where it actually makes you know an impact yeah this is what i was kind of talking about earlier with morrison in this book i mean it's it's just a different gear for him to throw these little like like you said, whimsical, fun, Silver Age type things that he nails it in this book. It's perfect for the for the setting. So we know that Clark shows you know benevolence to Solaris because that if you recall his encounter with the Superman Squad, with you know the mix of Petlick Superman and the, of course the Bandit Superman who was was uh, you know himself, that Solaris is going to be an ally. So he kind of uh, he spares him. And, you know, refuses, you know, in true Superman slash, you know, Batman form, you know, he, he won't kill him. You know, he just kind of like wanted to like depower him and, you know, it's kind of like, OK, well, you just, you know, go be mad over there and everything else will be fine. Clark gets back to the Daily Planet and I mean, visibly ill. And I, I like the wrinkles and stuff like that that quietly draws on these on these next couple of pages, because like I said, with this strange, you know, odd, beautiful line work that he does when he does the faraway shots, you can still see that Clark is shaken, that he is not well. And as he submits his article appropriately, Superman, you know, is dead. You know, he basically falls over kaput and everybody's trying to save him. And Lex Luthor and kind of a cool twist on his Silver Age outfit, the green and purple um, super well. The green and purple Luthor outfit was pre-Super Friends, and the Super Friends kind of like embellished upon it. But um, he kind of takes that old uh, Luthor costume and, with true like scientific popped collar, starts to just go balls out crazy on Metropolis, and that will end um, issue number eleven. This is a pretty cool ending. What did you guys think? Yeah, I like the last page, and I like the uh, yeah. <laughs> I-, I like the purple and green blimp that's kind of like raining fire down on the city and it has the LL logo which is cool you know again it's like it's interesting but it's fun and you know very, I, I liked it I like the little glow in his eye everything about that last page is cool 
plus we get that kind of callback to one million and there's another callback in issue 12 as well uh, where he says you know well i'm told in the future that you're going to be helpful so i'm going to let you live you know to solaris but um in true cliffhanger fashion you know, superman is dead on his feet dying and here's lex luthor with superpowers and cliffhanger set yeah and you know we really saw this in the jeff Loeb superman batman public enemies where you know luthor you know at the height of his power president still goes you know crazy with his powered suit and you also saw this in 52 when lex created the everyman project you know these guys were just test dummies so he could get powers for himself so for as much disdain and uh, complete covetousness that lex has you know deep down somewhere inside in the cockles of his heart that he wants to be Superman, and he's just too proud to beg. You know what I mean? So he does it for himself. Because if Lex really was what he said he was in that gospel issue that we were talking about, he wouldn't need any of this, any, any, any of this to happen at all. You know, he would be, I guess, a, a little more Dr. Quintum than, well, mad scientist. If you take a look at the art on Lex's uniform slash costume, one of the theories that was going on as this um, series progressed, was that Dr. Quintum was actually Lex Luthor in disguise somehow. And a lot of people thought this because of the jacket design of, on Quintum, that they thought that that was kind of like a precursor to the, as I w had just mentioned, the traditional uh, purple jumpsuit popped collar little ditty that he puts on <laughs> and runs around in. That was not the case, though, um, because a lot of things with Lex didn't kind of line up for me. I don't know about you guys kind of thinking back to those first issues. Um, but, you know, he had to have his niece draw or pencil on, you know, his eyebrows and stuff. There were just a lot of weird Lex moments that I think, you know, John, like you had said, were just weird Morrison moments that came off as weird Lex moments that weren't really story related. So, you know, a, a lot of, you know, like I said, myself included, you know, we kind of thought that, like, Quintum was going to pull the rug out from under Superman's feet and say, not only did Lex Luthor get you, but I'm Lex Luthor and I, and I got you twice over. But, you know, we know that's not, we know that, you know, to be un untrue at this point. But Even Luthor in prison in the um, first volume, isn't that when um, Parasite, like, sucks Superman's powers out? Luthor really doesn't, like, he doesn't know he's going along with the interview with Clark and, like, all these things are kind of happening right under his nose, but he doesn't put two and two together. Right. I thought that was kind of strange, you know, for Lex. Right. And, like, the other thing, too, is if you look at the, that issue, guys, remember that he had an escape route out of the prison. So, like, all the more reason for, you know, speculation to be that, oh, he's really Dr. Quintum. Right. It's interesting, though, because Quintum and Luthor are kind of uh, two sides of the same coin. You know, Luthor is using all of his massive brain power for his own, you know, domination of the world. And Quintum seems to be trying to use all of his massive brain power for the betterment of the world yet causes almost as much trouble as Luthor despite his good intentions you know what I mean yeah and and totally and that really feeds into it because you know I mean Quentin was a new character and there was really nothing for us to as readers hold on to or believe that he would appear in continuity you know god forbid or anything like that so that was that was kind of like fuel to the fire so to speak so I, I think a lot of it was probably fan created and, and not intentional on Morrison's part but I think, Jim, as you had said, you know, the similarities were absolutely intentional. But I think it's intentional. It's just coincidence that people got their wires crossed for good or for ill, you know, when going through this. I think it's a natural reaction to a Morrison book, right? You know, looking for the conspiracy, <laughs> looking for the twist. I mean, 
I'm sure uh, I'm sure that was the feeling that Morrison couldn't just write this straight quote Silver Age book without there being some double meaning or some twist. I mean that's that's totally like I said I I think that was totally a possibility and I just think that the interesting thing was this was such um, fan created and like just never acknowledged he wouldn't say one way or the other which I thought was kind of cool too so it's kind of like I guess this speaks to you know let the whole story play out let the writer write you know do their job kind of a thing yippers well a theme he keeps going through too is um, how people use what gifts they're given you know I mean Luthor uses his for his domination plans Quentin is using his for the betterment of man yet causing a lot of problems on his own Kryptonians who came you know they had all the powers of Superman yet none of the moral uh, uh, guidance the you know Zabaro is given this great vision of being a po- you know, warrior poet but he's surrounded by you know, bizarro world. Yeah, and income you know, poops. We, <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, they, you know, the, the theme that keeps coming back is, uh, you know, okay, you have this power, you have this ability, but what you do with it is really what is important. And I think we see that with Luthor and Quentin probably most most markedly. I think, you know, and to kind of finish off the Quentin d- debate discussion here is that who else other than Lex Luthor could have funded, could have housed, could have put into ignition in full throttle uh, something like P-R-O-J-E-C-T. You know, like who else could put project, you know, together, which probably was one of the more convincing arguments that that, that he was Quintum. So LexCorp is never going to be enough for Lex Luthor. You know, he's got his hands in, you know, how many pies that we don't even know of. You know, for all we know, he could have brought the Underverse to Earth. And, and Hetra, in, indeed, but it, that's just not the way the story played out. And I, I'm not going to say the story's better or worse for it. I just think that it was just a cool kind of like, what if, you know, while I was reading, and I, you know, don't want to give it any more playtime than it deserves. So let's go jump into issue number 12. So issue number 12 is going to be um, kind of like the end cap to this. And I think importantly that this issue 12 also serves as the end cap to the only completed all-star storyline concept that DC has started. Now, we know that you know uh, DC's uh, Jim Lee and Frank Miller all-star Batman and Robin has been delayed so long, my, you would have thought you were reading Ultimates 2. But, but Brian Hitch is not working on that. Anyway, the purpose of this all-star line was really to bring in uh, creative teams, not you know showcase new talent or what have you. Probably this is the closest thing that's come out since All Star. The All Star line has probably been Wednesday comics with all these crazy, you know, Mike Allred, Neil Gaiman, which I'm only going to describe as like a super, super uber team, you know what I mean? And, you know, All Star Soups is the only one that's been able to finish it since Batman's been in, not ready to be shot or colored or anything like that yet, that they just got behind. But the Adam Hughes All-Star um, Wonder Woman project has not even been solicited, even though it's been talked about for like two years, you know what I mean? And the Jeff Johns All-Star Batgirl hasn't happened yet either. So it's good to have a volume two completely done on my bookshelf <laughs> and not have like, you know, outliers or like issues that you have to save to see if they read them, read them over again, you know? This idea and execution as an imprint, I think, is a really cool idea. And it's just kind of like, let them tell the stories, like I had said earlier, you know, just let them play in the sandbox. So issue 12 is going to kick off with a scene not that dissimilar to the dreaded Watchmen that we always refer to. Either imagining or dreaming, he's on a Krypton that's 
I guess in comic terms, mint condition and totally unhurt and untouched. Um, Kal-El joins his father, Jor-El, and Jor-El, the consummate scientist, like Quintum, like Luthor, reveals that Kal-El is actually dead, and his, his mass, his carbon, his actual life form is converting into solar, I have this, I have this written down, solar radio consciousness, because I don't know what that means. <laughs> and his father offers him basically the red pill or the blue pill. You can either you know, stay dead or you can come back to life, stating that thanks to Solaris that the sun has turned blue and that the Earth has actually become, for lack of a better word, an endangered species. Clark immediately wakes up and he fights off Lex Luthor. Now, I thought that this opening kind of uh, scene, montage, whatever you want to call it, really reminded me of Watchmen when Dr. Manhattan and Silk Spectre were on Mars and they're kind of doing like the let's kind of like do the survey of humanity and here are the stakes kind of a thing. Did you guys or can you see that kind of vibe in these first couple pages here? Yeah, I could definitely see it. Um, This was the first kind of like overly wacky moment for me. Like, I I don't know, something about it didn't, didn't ring true like for the rest of this book. It seemed kind of like thrown together. All right, he's dead. All right, he's back. Here we go. You know, I, I just I didn't um, I didn't think it flowed as well as everything else. But I get your Watchmen vibe definitely. I love how uh, it's it's not really Superman that confronts Luthor at first. It's Clark. What is that in your pocket? Oh, this this is a gravity gun. And then <laughs> Jimmy Olsen's like, um, uh, yeah, nice disguise, Superman. <laughs> is that your gravity gun in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? Nice disguise, Superman. Here's your costume I just happen to have sitting around. Oh, leave Luthor to me. So, fortunately, after Clark blows uh, Lex out of the freaking sky, (laughs) um, Jimmy, because, you know, he is Superman's power, right? He gives um, Clark um, a Superman costume, believing that Clark's at the fortress, you know, and uh, to basically continue the fight. So, after the battle, this gravity gun is basically decreased the time Lex's 24-hour serum. And at this point, Lex is totally weakened. And we have some really cool fight scenes and stuff in here. I mean, you know, you've got, you know, parking meters and stuff going everywhere. You've got, you know, all the cars being flipped up, which I can only imagine is an Action Comics number one reference in some way, shape, or form. And people running in terror. And you know it's a good fight when that's happening. Yeah, I did enjoy the action and the fights. And uh, again, I, I keep saying it. I said it in volume one a bunch of times. The color is just really outstanding it really stands out more so than usual for some reason i just think that his that his colors with especially with lex and superman in uniform more so than the prison scenes when he was in the jumpsuit it just i'm not gonna go completely off board and say it's iconic it's iconic but i mean it definitely has a classic feel to it as far as the coloring goes the colors feel right which i think is just you know obviously we all you know feel the same way as far as it being on par with the writing and likewise with the pencils. Even just the contrasts, you know, in that one fight scene and you have the green and the purple on Lex and the orange, you know, uh, mist coming off him, I guess, and it's just really uh, stunning. I love the part when Luthor um, finally figures out that uh, gravity, how gravity affects time, accelerates time, and his 24-hour period has run out. And to the very last, he's like, you know, he blames Superman. I could have saved the world. I knew how to save the world. I could have made everyone see. I could have saved the world if it wasn't for you. And then we see the whole 
you know, motivation for, for Luthor in this uh, series, you know, distilled to just a few sentences, you know. He blames Superman for every, you know, shortcoming that he, you know, has and for, for his constant, you know, failure to save the world. He blames Superman. And Superman's response to him is that he could have saved the world a long time ago if it mattered to him. I have a little star by that page in my notes, and you could take those those word bubbles, Jim, and you could put those in any single Lex Luthor story, whether it was Lex Luthor Man of Steel by Lee Bermejo, whether it was Public Enemies, whether it was, uh, you know, um, well, not Red Sun, <laughs> but that is so, I, I guess I want to say, how can I put this, like a, a, such a versatile voice that Lex has that that's why, in a lot of respects, like the Joker, the quintessential supervillain, at least on the DC side of, of the world. You know what I mean? And you know, like he had said, when, with his powers kind of uh, failing him, and time, you know, being sped up at, at such a rapid pace with the, uh, due to the gravity gun, uh, for you know that one instant, just like that one instant when you know Kal-el saw his dad, Lex sees the world just as Superman sees it. Um, he's kind of has like Superman vision, and then Lex just starts crying like a baby, <laughs> and he just gets you know complete world knowledge at the drop of a hat, uh, and then Superman punches him, which is awesome. <laughs> just that I was just gonna say it's just that fleeting moment, like just so close, like Lex always is. You know, he thinks he's got him, and rug gets pulled out from under him. And it's beyond just jealousy of Superman. It's it's beyond just you know wanting what Superman has or. You know, wanting the power that Superman represents, it's, it's you know, he blames him for everything. If you look at the very, you know, even in the roots, the roots of Luthor in the, you know, in the 60s, he blames Superboy for losing his hair, uh, you know, from some, some uh, cockamamie Silver Age experiment that he was doing. Uh, but he blames Superboy for you know losing his hair, and in this we see the same you know primal motivation of Luthor. He blames Superman for him not being the one who's the savior of the world, for him you know not being the, the the you know the big the primary hero on the planet. It's it's beyond jealousy to just you know total rage at his own shortcomings as personified by Superman. So we can't forget that he's still you know transforming into this solar radio consciousness. And it's kind of like almost complete. Now, the title of, of this one is Superman in Excelsius. And this is not because I went to Catholic school because they would have kicked me out anyway. But I know my Latin. And Excelsius means basically the highest. You might know this from the old church song, uh, Gloria in Excelsius or, you know, in Excelsius Deo. Um, basically, like it's, it means highest. It's Superman at his highest. And as this radio consciousness Morrison invention, which I don't really give that much credence, but gets ramped up, he and Lois they hug and kiss one you know last time, and he says that that he loves her for the last time. He takes off, and in another strange similarity between Batman Superman public enemies, he flies right into the sun as everything kind of like overtakes him, and then when he blasts into the sun. I guess whatever microscopic, nanoscopic process is taking place, that this repairs the sun and he saves the day for the last time. So this is Superman saving humanity, saving existence, saving everybody from the Sun Eater or the Bizarros or Atlas and Samson or the lizard people that live under the Earth from issue um, one and two or Chronovore. He, this, everything's complete and he's done. 
And then we fast forward to a year later, memorial service is happening for him. Lois isn't sad. She's basically, she tells Jimmy that he is going to come back once he makes, I guess, for lack of a better word, a prosthesis for the heart, a prosthesis heart for the sun. Because he's a solar being, which I guess in this story is true. I mean, he's powered by the sun, right? Not created from it but certainly needs to sustain is making kind of like, I don't know. He's kind of building the sun, which is an interesting take on things. I'm not really sure why Lois would think that, but the story concludes with um, Dr. Quintum with um, the project door shut on the very last page. And basically this thing is, well, if anything crazy like this happens again, they're ready. And next to him is a gigantic door with the Superman S shield and the S is reversed and at first I thought it was a Z, like Zabaro, but then I quickly realized that it was a 2. So um, Superman 2 could possibly be on the horizon. So let's talk about everything from Lex getting punched up, punched out, I guess, to um, the end of our story, guys. A real, real interesting kind of like science plus modern comic storytelling plus, well, superheroes mix in this in this. It's got you know it's like Morrison's got his own serum he made for the book you know what I mean it's it's an interesting twist. Yeah, you know it it, it took it on that path that I didn't want it to take. The only uh, the, the, the path that only he could take it on I think also exactly you know I mean? like exactly just weird wacko what's going on but would you call it uplifting though like at the end I don't know I don't know <laughs> because I, like, I don't know because I don't. Well, we don't know exactly what he's getting at. Like, is there going to be another completely different um, person to be a Superman? Or, you know, you don't know where he's going with it. Now, if he comes back in a book and somebody else is Superman, that probably wouldn't be received well. Wouldn't you think? Like, if they made a new Superman? But Clark did give him the, the ability to combine Earth and human DNA. If you remember from a couple issues back, right, so right. That's probably like that's probably the direction, but yeah, I'm not saying that it wouldn't make sense. It could, but I don't what, know what, that. That's John. That's what Connor Superboy is right now. He's Lex yeah. plus Superman. You know, well, so what do you mean? Here's, well, here's my here's my thing. I think this is what you were getting at before with what we wanted the All Star comics to be. Put these great writing and art teams together. Let them tell this self-contained story any way they would close it up wrap it up move on to the next hero that we can do it for so this is kind of like now you know we did an all-star superman story now we're getting into like superman returns territory like he's gonna have a son and it's lois's and it's convoluted and you know like why can't we just end all-star superman without getting morrisony on us that's my Cause, take. Because it's Morrison. I got you, but you know, that's just, <laughs> th- I mean, that's, that's why my it's vision of it. Yeah. Like, I don't need this to go past twelve issues. Like, I didn't need it to go past six. I thought he did a nice job. He told a good Silver Age Superman story. Great art, great color, great you know writing. Move on. Let's get Aquaman. Let's get Wonder Woman. Let's get. Yeah, that'd be a good one, know. Aquaman. Yeah, I, I would star ambush bug. <laughs> Whatever. With Keith but, Giffen. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, the cool thing to me in this is that uh, Morrison, uh, I mean, he referred to One Million with Solaris, and then he also refers to One Million with this, because in 
one million, Superman Prime, as he's referred to, Kal-El, the Superman that we all know, lives in the sun. And it's kind of weird like how this matches up with DC one million continuity, even more so than regular DC continuity does in, in similar ways. But I totally get what you're saying about him getting mystic with the, the ending or whatever, and uh, you're right, it doesn't really need a sequel, but I mean, the door is open there, I guess, if they wanted to do one, you know, down the road. He just wants to get another paycheck. <laughs> not only would I rather see other heroes, John, I'd rather see other people take on Superman. Right. Can you imagine like a, a Warren Ellis, John Cassidy Superman comic, or, you know, a Paul Pope Superman comic, or, I don't know, take your pick, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman and Darwin Cook doing Superman, you know, I mean... Well, as many artists and, and writers as there are, there could be that many cool takes on Superman and different different points of view. This was kind of like the build, though, because I don't know if you guys read this, but Superman Confidential was running concurrently with this. Like um, Batman Confidential is still running, and they had uh, and, they, and they likewise had a special come out with uh, Tim Sale and Darwin Cook, which was um, what was that one? It was uh, Superman Kryptonite, I believe. I could I could probably wrong, but Darwin did the the story, and then Tim Sale did the, the, the art to it. And I, wow, I am such a huge fan of both of those guys. I just didn't really care for it. This is such a weird story if you look at the Morrison backlog like that, that he did with JLA Earth 2, that he did with Final Crisis, that we did, because, you know, he had all the Superman, uh, Jim, like he had, oh my gosh, what's the dude's name from um, The Authority? Who's, is it Apollo? Apollo. He's been, like Morrison's been playing around with Superman so much, that even when you were talking about the Electric Blue Superman earlier in the episode, that's in volume two of Morrison's JLA run that I just finished reading a couple weeks ago. And, like, I definitely feel that he just kind of, like, put all the pieces together. And as far as the ending goes, this was probably the nicest way he could say sequel. I don't think it was particularly overbearing, even though it is a giant splash page. As far as the, the twists and the takes and the character that he's shown us so far, I mean, I'm definitely trusting. I don't know if I know. I mean, this was what, 97, 98, when, you know, comics were still two ninety nine. I don't know if I paid four bucks for it, but it might be worth a look. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it would be like a bad book to continue. I just think that, like you guys were saying earlier, I think the all-star vision has been either lost or, or changed along the way. Or, or just the simple fact that DC hasn't made it a priority. I mean, are they really going to yell at Jim Lee and Frank Miller? Let's, I mean, let's be real. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no. I, I, like, I, I, it's such a weird like positioning thing that they might have to just, frankly, not negotiate with. What were you going to say? Uh, no, I was just going to say that you know now. So now Morrison is like writing another Superman continuity. That's the point I was going to make. They're having the same problem that. Uh, the Ultimates are have now is that they have too much of their own continuity for something that was supposed to be created outside of continuity. Right. And, and I thought, and, and this was totally wrong, I, I thought Batman and Robin was kind of like an all-star book. And, and maybe I thought of that because of the team. I just associated it with all-star Superman, I guess. So well, it feels like it, though. In, in fairness, it does feel like right, it. Right, so, right. And he, so it's almost like he's writing another Batman continuity. You know, because that book, while it is, um, you know, the new Batman and Robin team, it's Damien and uh, and Dick and not Bruce, but it doesn't seem to be tied in with everything else that's going on in DC. 
So they're right. you know they're kind of letting them run run with it you know Morrison right now, which is cool. I mean, right. to kind of go back to the quietly art end of things, like they're I think they're doing I think they're kind of taking Marvel's lead with the Spider Man titles that they're kind of doing three on and three off because Philip Tan, you know, who just finished the Agent Orange arc in Green Lantern, he's already posting art pages and covers and stuff to the you know to the red upcoming Red Hood arc that Morrison's writing. So like Quietly's not even done yet, but you know they already have Team Two ready for the second part of the arc. So I mean, you know, these are the guys that can't, and I and I do not mean this, you know, in any disrespect, but you know that would be hard pressed to do a monthly over and over and over again. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you if you broke it down, probably uh, four fifths of the DCU continuity right now is being written by Jeff Johns and Grant Morrison. <laughs> right, and you know, in his other upcoming project. Uh, multiversity in which he's kind of exploring the multiverse, I would only imagine we're going to see different permutations of the Superman character again because, well, that's what the whole purpose of multiverse and, by extension, the former Elseworlds, Elseworlds titles, you know, have been about. Uh, what, what, did I, what did I mention? Red Sun? Yeah. You know? Or, or what else have we done? Kingdom Come? You know? It's all about how many different ways can you look at this? How many things can you kind of, like, extrapolate, brainstorm, and show us something new. So I feel that like he's definitely tread on familiar territory, but that familiar territory, like we've seen with him dying or getting ill or the underverse or the whatever, is new territory at the same time, which doesn't really surprise me because a lot of Morrison stuff is kind of in a weird way contradictory. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, it'll bring us more good Superman stories, and, and, that's, and that's fine. A lot of what I've been saying lately, especially with a lot of the Marvel stuff, is you might not like how you got here, but as long as you like where it's gotten you, <laughs> you know, like I didn't love Secret Invasion, but the Dark Reign stuff is like really good, you know, so maybe I don't love him starting another Superman continuity, but maybe the All-Star book will give us some good stories for a long time, so that's cool. There's been some talk, as far as Morrison goes, about doing uh, one-shots, um, as far as that, that are in the all-star line with this Superman continuity. Um, some of the ones that he's talked about in different interviews include um, teaming this Superman, not Superman 2 from the door on the last page, but this Superman, teaming him up with the Golden Age Superman and a world's finest team-up featuring this second Superman and also the son of Batman. And lastly, that Superman squad that we saw fight the Chronovore led by the crazy Superman of the 853rd century, which would make up that Superman dynasty that he was talking about. So, like, he definitely has the seeds. Now, it's a matter of wherewithal and interest, I think, whether if DC, you know, decides to, I guess, greenlight these projects. But, again, this is nothing official. This is just, you know, different kind of, like, uh, variations on the same theme that he talked about. That probably, in and of themselves, guys, those three things that I just mentioned, those probably could have been uh, easily issues or different tasks that he had to complete, you know, within this single story. So that's kind of a um, where the state of the all-star universe, so to speak, stands at this point. And it's interesting choices, you know, with like having him meet up with different Superman from different times. You know, it, it can go either way for Morrison. It could be like really cool stories where Superman's helping himself from a different time, and or it can be totally wacky, like time travel convoluted stuff that, 
you know, will fry my brain. You know, I could see it. I could see it going either way. Right. And like, if you take a look at the panel at the at the end of that one issue with Schuster when he's drawing the S emblem, there's of course the really you know uh, sentimental. Uh, way of looking at it like oh look it's uh you know Siegel and Schuster drawing Superman you know look look he's made life that's made him back but then there's also that weird kind of twist when you can look at it and be like well you know these two are slaves to their own creation like they're compelled to make Superman kind of like Morrison although I know for a fact that he enjoys this stuff or he wouldn't be soliciting one shots and stuff but there's kind of like and I just certainly don't want to turn the dark we can't really control our own thoughts kind of discussion but um, it, it definitely, you know, I think holds up. So I'm going to go to Jim and then to John. Why don't we give this, why don't you guys give this a final rating? How about on a, like five stars and some last thoughts on the book? And then we got some announcements from John and what's coming up and stuff. Take it away, Jimbo. I give it like uh, four and a half stars. I really enjoyed it. I thought that he, uh, especially in the last issue, something I wanted to mention with him, uh, you know, Superman being in the sun. Superman is this great symbol of hope, you know, and there's nothing more hopeful than, you know, the, the shining sun. So it's kind of cool that he went with the iconography of, you know, Superman being in the sun, you know, to make us all, uh, you know, to save us all. Um, but, you know, the, the one symbol of hope being put inside of the other, you know, being used in tandem. Uh, I really like the series in, in general. I wouldn't mind if there were more in this continuity or if there were just more Morrison and Quietly Superman stories. I thought it was a cool mix of uh, Morrison weirdness and uh, Silver Age uh, continuity, and uh, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, I'm, I'm right around the same. I, I would give it four. Just enough fun, and Morrison told the line, and he stayed on the right side for me on this one. I like the stuff that he did without getting too crazy. We talked a little bit at the end, maybe with the radio waves and the, you know, the sun stuff. I, maybe he started towing the line a little too closely with the Morrison-esque twists, but it, it stayed it stayed good for me. I like it self-contained. I like the all-star line, so I, I'd go for. Yeah, I'm gonna have to agree with you on that. I mean, if Morrison's guilty of anything, it's being himself with this book, but. Amidst the criticism and the, oh my gosh, this is the best Superman story I've read in years, more or less what Mark Wade said in the introduction to this volume, because even as Mark Wade notes, he's read them all. I mean, he's a huge Superman fan, and even writing it and Flash and everything else, that you take a look at the story, and the story ends where it started, which is the sun, from that giant splash page, or, you know, Krypton sun, you know, aiding and abetting in the destruction of the planet that he kind of like you were saying Jim becomes one with it so it's really full circle to the extreme and I really like how inferential things tie up and meet up with each other too um, I really tried to figure out when I was reading this if I tolerated Grant Morrison's weirdness or if I just had a negative reaction to it and after finishing this and after ordering We Three I'm just going to say that I just completely embrace his weirdness and I take it for what it is. And I know that it's a converse, like, like we were saying one word, black gambit, right? Or two words, right? Or Lord I, or what, what did we say? Like solar radio consciousness. One or two words can spark so much like, what is this craziness? And we talked about it, you know what I mean? And we got over it and I don't really think that there's certainly room for criticism, but not room for like hyper confusion which I think, if anything, people are more than willing to give, especially with you know reviews or ratings or stuff. So with that, dudes, another awesome episode. I would only hope that this lives up to our 
uh, normal and semi-passable broadcast standards, you know. <laughs> hey, um, John, you got a couple things coming up. Do you want to talk about one of our buddies? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention um, our buddy Big Jim, who uh, is a great artist. He did work for the Ed, Ed and Eddie cartoon for a long time. He opened up a commissions list on the forums, the comicforums.com. Uh, if you go to the main Comic Geek Speak forum and you search Big Jim or you look for uh, Big Jim's thread on doing commissions, definitely check it out. His, his stuff is up there. You'll see a commission that he did for Adam. You'll see a commission that he did for me. Um, and they're like super awesome. And, um, you know, stop by, stop by and take a look. You might, you might be able to have him do something for you, which you will definitely be happy with. He does like a really cool cartoony style. Um, he did the Legion of Doom for you, Adam. Yeah, he did the Legion of Doom for you, right? Yeah, it's about yeah. it's about a year old. And let me let me tell you something about Big Jim's artwork. All right, let me tell you something about Jim Miller right now, gentlemen. I have at arm's reach art from you know Ethan Van Skyver or Ivan Rice, and there are two people of whom's artwork I have framed in my house, and that's Dave Dewanch and that's Jim Miller. And I. Uh, you know, I see the stuff that, you know, he's done every day when I'm getting ready for work and I'm over by my comics and stuff like that. And mine's like a horizontal splash. And, John, yours is like a vertical splash, which is crazy. Tell me about yours because yours, I think, is awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was looking at his style. He he had opened up commissions earlier, um, I guess last year. And I was looking at his style and, and some of the things that he had done for other people. And I said, what, you know, what? who would I like for him to draw for me? And I said, my, Jim, just my give response, me. My response yeah. is everyone ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Stuff is so cool. No, seriously. Like his Daredevil stuff, Punisher. But I know it's like, who do you pick? Who do you pick for that? Because this stuff's crazy. But I yeah. think you made a good choice, though. Yeah, I went with Space Boy uh, from Umbrella Academy and, uh, and Hellboy. And that's all I told him. And he came up with this great splash of the two of them fighting like a tentacle monster and hellboy cursing out hp lovecraft for starting the whole damn thing and and it's just awesome so i just wanted to mention him that he's look you know he's got a little time on his hands and he opened up commissions his price is really reasonable his stuff is great just come down to the comicforums.com and i know he's got a blog spot too right adam is it bigjim.blogspot.com i'm probably yeah. butchering that and we'll we'll put something on the forum and stuff too. It's bigjim dot big dot. Oh my gosh, this is me getting ready for English class tomorrow. Bigjim dot blogspot dot com, and you can also look his stuff up on comicsketchgallery dot com or comicartfans dot com. Very very cool stuff, and I mean, worthwhile. What a cool guy, you know? Seriously, good stuff. Yeah, check it out. Yep. Um, hey Jim, do you have any geek brunch stuff to report or catch us up on or promote or what's going on in your neck of the woods? Uh, well, we just did the uh, Derby Girl Geek Brunch today. It was pretty successful. They uh, played against the Cincinnati team last night, lost by about 15 points. But everybody drowned their sorrows in uh, eggs and potatoes today. And the uh, Pittsburgh Comic Con is coming up in a few weeks. Unfortunately, I'm only going to be there the one day. But um, a lot of great guests coming in, a lot of uh, a lot of family and friends and uh, from, from our forums and a lot of listeners. So uh, I hope to be seeing a lot of people out there on Sunday. That's really yes. all I've got going to be a good time. We've got uh, the 11th, 12th, and 13th at the new convention center in Monroeville. So if you are around my hometown of Pittsburgh slash Monroeville, where I went to high school, by all means, stop in. I'll be staying at my parents' house, so I don't know if they're going to you know, want a whole bunch of hot, sweaty guys in there, but I think I'll just suffice. 
So definitely check out the Pittsburgh Con. I mean, it's going to be new and different this year because of the new location. And I had I had even posted under actually under you, Jim, that I've been going to that thing since high school. Pittsburgh was what how many years old? Almost twenty years old at this point. And it's going to be. It's, I'm excited. It's going to be a new, uh, you know, you know, just a new format, new artist alley, new podcast alley, new new vendor, hopefully selection and and arrangement and stuff that they're going to have. So I'm you know definitely looking forward to it. But um, you know we'll yeah I'll have more details to come and whatnot, and I'll pop I'll throw up a forum thread and, and stuff. But that's going to be a three day con, and it's interesting that like Pittsburgh's a two day con, uh, more uh, cons that are you know larger. Like Baltimore or whatever, there are two days, but you can definitely get a lot of work and a lot of sketches and a lot of books done and bought and paid for in, in those three days in Monroeville. So that's cool. Hey, John, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, we start the Immortal Iron Fist Omnibus, which is something that uh, I'm looking really forward to. It's a great book, it's uh, Matt Fraction, Ed Brubaker. Yeah, so we're going to do that in two parts. That'll be like our next maxi series. So uh, we'll start with Immortal Iron Fist Part 1 next week. And then we're going to do a little wild card episode. Um, We're going to do villains. We're going to pick our favorite stories of villains and our favorite villains and uh, what they mean, who they are. And we'll come up with some good content for that show. I know a lot of us are looking forward to that too. Yeah. Hey, can you give me like – Sarah Palin. (laughs) <laughs> hey john i have not picked up the um iron man or iron man iron fist there's there, this is me being a professional um the iron fist stuff yet can you give me like the five second ten second uh sales pitch because um you know i obviously want to do the episodes with you guys i just haven't picked it up yet so for those of us who are not indoctrinated yet what's the what's the give me the high low on this thing what's what's okay the well for you especially I will say that. Well, I'm going to be yes, I'm going to be very careful because I know the the magnitude of what I'm about to say. This is besides it having its own giant event, which it does not. This is the Green Lantern of Marvel, meaning this is the character who Ed Brubaker and and Matt Fraction and now uh, Dwayne Straczynski took. And filled in all of the legacy and backstory to make a greater picture for the character. So they've added to the continuity. They haven't changed. They haven't rebooted. They have added to the backstory of the legacy of the Iron Fist. So now there are... 66 Iron Fists in history and there are different worlds that have their own version of the Iron Fist and the world's align and they have a giant tournament to fight each other and it's Mortal Kombat, Return of the Dragon and every cool kung fu movie you've ever seen and Fat Cobra is the best character ever. You know, I heard, well, I guess That's pretty you badass. say this, you know, a, a little bit, but I heard that there's like the immortal weapons that are like coming out now and that's like a really cool series too. Are you, are you so should we kind of like pick that up when we go to the store this week and snag the Iron Fist stuff too or read that afterwards or what? It, it won't be part of the omnibus, but it's definitely – the omnibus is going to introduce you to the uh, immortal weapons, and then you can go out and grab the one-shots of each immortal weapon. And maybe that will be traded someday, and if all goes well, we'll, uh, you know, we'll one-shot the immortal weapons trade at some point. Awesome. And then, Jim, coming up in October, you've got um, what's been cooking in your brain since we started the dudes last year. 
which would be League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty psyched to be getting into that. We're going to be inviting uh, Megan Washington back on the show uh, for the Black Dossier episode, which would be really cool. I know she's a big fan of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and uh, now that we've done ourselves uh, some Watchmen a little bit, I think it's about time we broke out some more Alan Moore, so there you go. <laughs> and the goon, Jim, you have the goon coming up before that for a one-shot. Oh, oh that's right. Uh, the goon, nothing but misery, the first trade, and... Uh, my exclusive interview with Eric Powell. We'll finally get to air that for everybody. That'll be sweet. Awesome. And then we've got, um, I heard back from him uh, today, we've got uh, Derek, a.k.a. Brother D, from the Mail Order Zombie Podcast for possibly the most requested book we've had since, what would you say, last August? Well, yeah. We're going to be doing Walking Dead in November, which is going to be pretty cool. And um, so I think that gives you guys a heads up on what we're going to be doing and where we're going to be going for the next couple months. So, um, and you know, we'll like, you know, John said, we're going to be sprinkling in some wild card episodes and stuff. So it's not just, you know, Marvel mania or America's best comics mania or anything like that. And frankly, it's about time. We got some Kirkman up in this business. Um, so we're recording on Sunday night and I know we kind of said happy birthday and, and whatnot to ourselves on episode 50, but Legion of Dudes episode one came out on August the 26th of last year. So this, I guess, really, truly, madly, deeply is our anniversary show. So once again, gentlemen, awesome congratulations to you both and to Russ and to Reed and to Dan and also to um, to Russ and Ken and all those guys uh, for helping us out through the years. Absolutely. It seems like a million have gone past every Sunday night as we record. But um, year two seems to be shaping up pretty awesomely. I am jazzed, jacked, and ready to go to read all three of these over again, especially League of Extraordinary. I haven't touched that in like a couple years. So Excellent. Cool. So Once again, let's uh, yeah, let's just thank Dan, uh, our man Dan from San Antonio and the Rona Forums one last time. This episode was sponsored by him. So thanks again, Dan. Absolutely. And make sure to check out legionofdudes.com make sure you check out Brad Frank and Bill Half Hour Wasted episode 139 should be up on Monday and also check out bigjim.blogspot.com check out gypsycafe.net and guys we'll see you next week have a good night everybody take care good night get the show on get And they say it gets colder You're bundled up now Wait till you get